Well, we're going to read from the Bible now. Please turn to the letter to the Philippians. And we're going to continue our series here, although we're going to link it to Easter. This text today happily uh, con- connects with the resurrection hope. So we're going to read from Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is God's word. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Please enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit. And right now grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it's Easter Day and I hope you're enjoying the long weekend. We even had a bit of sunshine on Friday and perhaps you're going to enjoy a chocolate egg or two or a barbecue. But what does Easter actually celebrate? What's it all about? It celebrates the victory of Jesus Christ over our worst enemies, sin, Satan and death. On Good Friday, we remember Jesus' cross, his death. And at the cross, Jesus died for sins, but not for his own sins. He had no sins of his own to die for. He was the one utterly pure, utterly blameless human being who had ever lived. So he died for his people, all those who he would call to himself as their representative, as their head He dies the death that we were due. And by his death, he made payment, full payment for all our guilt and took away our shame, took it on himself. And on the third day, Easter day, which we celebrate today, he rose again to new life. It was a bodily resurrection. He will never die again. His body was a glorified body. And this means that we too can be raised. This is our guarantee of a future of bodily resurrection, because Jesus rose, we can too, our guarantee of a life without end. You see, Jesus didn't just come from heaven to earth to die for our sins. He also came from the future 
to the present to show us what the future will be like. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. That was an announcement of the future verdict that God will make on death. One day, death will be over and all will be life. When Jesus rose, the future came into the present. He's the first example of what God will do one day for all his people. Reverse decay, recreate life, bring light and joy. Now, all of that is theology. It's it's true, but it can feel quite remote and out there. So I want to just ask, how, how does this message connect with our lives today? How is it relevant? Honestly, what difference does it make? And we will see the real world cash value of the resurrection in this passage today in our teaching from Philippians chapter 3. Now we've been working our way through Philippians. We've learned about Paul's great affection for this church, the first European church plant. It was set up in northern Greece and it was in this place, Philippi, that was actually a Roman colony in Greece. And Paul had great affection and he's writing this letter to them from prison. But last week we heard a serious warning. Paul was concerned about a possible danger to these young Christians and he drew from his painful experiences as a pastor in places like Galatia and he makes this passionate appeal at the beginning of chapter 3. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And he's talking about Jewish Christian teachers who were infiltrating churches and changing the gospel, the good news. They were effectively saying, it's great that you've got Jesus. But you're not quite there yet. You're sort of halfway. What you really need is Jesus plus. You need to keep these regulations from the Old Testament. You need to keep these special days, these laws, things about food. Uh, the men among you must be circumcised and only then will you be fully in God's people. In other words, just having Jesus isn't enough to save you. You need to go the whole way. And this error, this, this uh, false teaching is can be known as, as moralism or legalism, keeping laws in order to earn your salvation. And it has plagued the history of the church in every generation. It's around with us today. Many people believe that they're only saved, not just by Jesus, but by doing certain things as well themselves. Now, it is deadly, this, because actually it appeals to something in our, 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 our hearts. Deep down, we would all like to be our own Lord and Saviour, because deep down we're all proud. We'd all like to be able to say, oh, I'm saved by God's kindness to me, plus a certain percentage of my own efforts. But pleasing as that might feel, Paul is deeply concerned about it, because moralism will steal the good news away from you. And he says, if anyone thinks they can bring their own credentials here and show how good they are, I've got more on my CV. He did all the great things that he could say about himself, how, how faultless he'd been, how well he'd studied, how, how hard he'd worked to keep God's laws. And he says, actually, all those credentials, I now consider them, compared to knowing Jesus, they're worthless, they're rubbish, they're trash. Now, today, we turn from that first warning, the, the warning about moralism and legalism, to a second warning, which is the opposite error but it is just as lively and just as present today. And that's what we're going to look at. It's the danger of relativism or hedonism, living for pleasure. Now, Tertullian was a Christian writer in the first, the second and third centuries. 
very one of the early church fathers and Tertullian is quoted as saying just as Christ was crucified between two thieves so this gospel is ever crucified between two opposite errors he meant there are two false ways of thinking which are always like two thieves trying to steal away the power of the gospel from us one side the first thief is the thief of moralism that if you keep the law that and keep your own efforts and works will save you but the other side is just as dangerous as the first and it's the thief that says you don't need to worry about pleasing God just relax it's all been done for you live as you please and Paul had seen the mess that that would make at Corinth. So now he turns to his dear friends at Philippi and he gives this balancing warning, a warning against the second thief. And he's, he makes two big points here. Firstly, press on towards the prize. Press on towards the prize. And secondly, stand firm in the happy hope. Press on towards the prize and stand firm in the happy hope. And this living like that will keep you from the thieves. Firstly, press on towards the prize. I wonder if you've heard of Eric Liddell. He's a Scottish amateur runner and athlete. He was actually a rugby player as well. And he actually went on to win two Olympic medals, uh, including gold in the 1924 Paris Olympics. But Liddell's amazing success was achieved in spite of a running style that was terribly ungainly. The Guardian newspaper reporting on his death in 1945 said he is remembered among lovers of athletics as probably the ugliest runner who ever won an Olympic championship. And they didn't mean he was ugly. They meant his style was so bad. When he appeared in the heats of the 400 metres at Paris in 1924, his huge sprawling stride, his head thrown back and his arms clawing the air moved the Americans and other sophisticated experts to laughter. But they weren't laughing later because this amazing straining forward led to victory. Liddell described his tactic for the 400 meter race in these ways. I run the first 200 meters as hard as I can. And then for the second 200 meters, with God's help, I run harder. <laughs> that was his tactic. In 1923, leading up to the Olympics, he ran a quarter of a mile race. And Liddell quite early on, um, on the first corner, tripped over the legs of one of the other runners called JJ Gillies. By the time he got back on his feet, the last of the other runners was 30 yards away and moving fast. But Liddell started sprinting. He attacked them with such pace that he finally, in the last three yards from, at the, from the end of the line, overtook the winner and won the race. He wouldn't let, let the, the fall de destroy him. He collapsed to the ground, absolutely spent. And some said that the, this performance bordered on the miraculous. Uh, they thought that his win in the quarter mile event was the greatest ever track performance in the history of athletics. Straining forward. But listen to how Liddell described his running. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He was a committed Christian. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. Now, friends, I think that is the point that the Apostle Paul is making in verses 12 to 16 of our passage. Just walk with me through this again. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this 
or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards. See, this is quite an intense appeal. Paul says three things. I've not obtained it. I've, I've not already arrived. I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it. These are three ways of basically saying the same thing, which is this. I haven't arrived. Even though I'm the Apostle Paul, even though I, you know, I had all these credentials, I was a firstborn uh, in the, from the tribe of Benjamin, I was circumcised on the eighth day, I was a Pharisee, I was faultless, I, I persecuted the church, I, I'm now an apostle, I'm, I'm bringing the word of God to everybody. And he says, basically, I haven't arrived, I'm still a work in progress. Even though I've received God's amazing grace and I don't need to earn my salvation one bit, it does not for one moment make me think that I can stop growing. I'm not the finished article. I'm very far from perfect. I am a work in progress. Back in verse 10, he'd said, I want to know Christ and be like him in every way. But here he says, I know I'm a long way off it. So what do I do? I press on. I forget what's behind. I strain towards the future, what is ahead. And verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards. What is this prize? I think the prize is the resurrection life itself. The prize is the life of verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. That's the prize, is to know Christ, to know his power of his resurrection, to share with him even in his sufferings, and to become like him. That's the goal of the Christian life, to be like Christ, and finally to see him face to face. Now, just let's be careful for a moment because we could remember our hearts tend to try and find ways of justifying ourselves. We could start to think, all oh, right, now I've got to win the prize. You know, Jesus saved me, but now I've got to add this extra effort of my own. It's not at all the case. Paul makes it very clear carefully in verse 12. Uh, I press on, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He, Jesus has already taken hold of me, he says. He's already guaranteed and secured my future life. But I'm pressing on towards it. I'm not earning it. It's already been given. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. The prize is knowing Jesus and living the resurrection life. The light, the joy of life with God. And our lives are a long way off that. But are we pressing on? Are we throwing off distractions and sins and things that trip us up and make us unfruitful in the Christian life? God made you for a purpose. And when you run, you feel his pleasure. Or are we living the Christian life very complacently, as if there's nothing really to strain for? 
Are we actually looking inwards rather than looking forwards? Verse 15 makes the point that mature Christianity looks like this. Thinking like this is what maturity is all about. If you think differently about it, he says, God will reveal it to you as well. But let's not fall back from where the position we've already attained. So the question I have with, for us in this first point, and it's a question I've got to, I ask myself too today, is are we pressing on towards the prize? Are we pressing on, friends? What is the tone of your spiritual life? Is there any energy in it, any dynamism, any holy dissatisfaction, a desire to grow, be more like Christ? Does it have any of the determination of Eric Liddell who could fall over and get up and carry on racing? Forgetting what's behind, stretching towards the future, pressing on towards the goal of being with Jesus in the resurrection life. Do our spiritual lives have any of that quality or have we forgotten what we were called to? Press on towards the prize. And secondly, stand firm in the happy hope. Stand firm in the happy hope. And I'm picking up here at verse 17. Now, across the road from our house in Manchester, there used to be a pub and it was called the Old House at Home. Uh, many of us used to go there in the old days and have lunch after church. But the Old House at Home fell on hard times and was closed. And eventually, last year, they pulled it down flattened it and built the foundation for 12 new townhouses and it took months and months and months and for a lot of the time it didn't look like much was going on over there and for the, the site frankly looked an absolute mess until about two weeks ago but the work was in progress and it was heading towards a conclusion. They finished one of the houses first, it's the house nearest to where we live and they made this house particularly beautiful and that house was the show home. Prospective buyers could book in and come and walk around and see what the other houses were going to look like when they were finished. So although the houses were an unfinished mess, you could know what they would be like in the future from the show home. The show home is a picture of the future in the present. And the local church is to be a show home for people to see heaven right now. Let me say it again. The local church is to be a show home for people to see heaven right now. The, the life, the values, the love, the kind of relationships of heaven should be existing in the local church right now. This is Paul's point in verse 17 and following. Verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Fascinating. Paul is basically saying here, copy me and other Christians who live like me. Imitate us. Imitate mature Christians as a model, as an example, as a pattern of godly living. Now, this is not something we tend to think about. But, you know, the mature Christians in our church are actually people we should copy. We should observe their way of life and imitate it. And this is a pattern through the whole New Testament. And we don't tend to think about it. Those of us, especially from the West, we're individuals. We tend to think we look inside, we design ourselves. 
That is absolutely alien to the spirit of the New Testament, which is look out, look to your leaders, spiritually mature people, whoever they may be in the church, and copy them. Christian parents know this, that your children will copy your way of life. They will imitate it. And my, isn't it embarrassing when you, your child opens their mouth and says something that they've heard from you, but you'd rather they, they didn't say it to anyone else because the kids are copying our way of life. We know this. So let me just maybe rub this in, in a bit more. Life group leaders, you have a position of responsibility and a great, great potential to model Christian living to your group. Life group leaders have between 10 and I think in one case 20 adults plus children in their groups and the leaders, and there's normally three or four leaders, are the ones who set the tone. Often in, when in pre-COVID times they would host the group, they connect with the group relationally, they spend time with them, they pray with them, the group observes them. So you are an, a, a, a pattern to your group, a model. You may not think you're very good looking, but you're a model. What about pastors? Every elder is a pastor. We know this from our studies of the Bible. We have five elders at the church. Elders and your wives, you are a model, a pattern. Your life is on show. People notice. And so the way you live sets an example sets a, a, a pattern that, that younger Christians will observe. Uh, every mature Christian, whether or not they're a life group leader or an elder or parent, is, is an example in our congregation. Because imitation and copying is how we learn as human beings. It's how we learn language. It's how we learn to speak. It's how we learn all sorts of things in life. And it's the same in the spiritual life. We learn by copying. And Paul says, keep your eyes on people who live gospel-shaped lives because there are many people who live very differently. And here's the warning, verse 18. For, he says, as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, so he's weeping as he writes this, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, the shocking thing about this is it's hard to avoid the conclusion that he's talking about people in the church. I mean, of course, pagans live like this, but they don't know Jesus. But why would he warn Christians it, with tears to copy people who live like he does because there are others who live as the enemies of the cross of Christ? There are some people in churches and many people outside who live as this, and here's how they live. Verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. What a picture. Now, you know, uh, if you know anything about world history and, and uh, other religions, you know that human beings have worshipped all sorts of things over the years. You know, the Egyptians had the sun god, Ra, and they had a, a god that was a god of various gods of nature they had a bull that was a god and they, the pharaoh was a god and they had gods of stars and moons and all sorts of things and, and many other religions over the years have worshipped all sorts of created things and Paul here brings it down I think to the most ridiculous level by saying somebody whose god is their stomach now I don't I, I haven't actually heard of any religion where 
people wor literally worship their stomach and one wouldn't want to think about an idol that looked like your stomach, would you? But you kind of get the picture here. He's reducing it to a kind of ridiculous level to make a point. Imagine if you're God, the be-all and end-all, the thing you ultimately served with your life was your own belly. So what does that say about you? It means you're utterly living for yourself. It means your, 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 your life is, is all about basically consumption, what you can get to make your belly feel good and full. And it also is quite an empty image because the belly doesn't stay full for long. It's an image of self-feeding, of self-satisfaction, but of dissatisfaction as well. And of course, the more we feed our stomach with the wrong stuff, the bigger our stomach gets and the less happy we are with it. So to have your God as your stomach is a deeply horrible and unsatisfying way of life. And it's absolutely self-centered. What an image that is. And he says, you know, that if, if that's how you're living, your destiny is destruction. This isn't a life that's going to lead you to heaven. It's going to lead you to eternal destruction. Because your mind is set on earthly things, the things of this world, without a thought for the world to come, the resurrection life with Jesus. So the big question for us here is, who are we imitating? Who are we imitating? Don't just live life for yourself and your pleasures for the here and now. Don't have your mind totally fixated on this world, which is futile and unsatisfying and empty. Live for something better. And then he turns to another image. And it's the image of a colony. Have a look at verse 20. But, he says, here's the contrast. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we await, sorry, we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, Philippi, the place that uh, this letter was written to, had been the scene of a famous battle in 42 BC. So about 100 years before Paul was writing. And two of the generals who had won that battle, one of them was called Antony, the other Octavian, had won this huge battle. And they now had loads of soldiers who were there hanging around in Greece with nothing else to do. So what they did to avoid the soldiers getting in trouble was give them all a bit of land and gave them citizenship, Roman citizenship, but the land they had was around Philippi. So Philippi became a Roman colony in Greece. So that meant that its land, its language, people there would speak Latin, its culture was Roman, and they took a great deal of pride in the fact that they were a Roman colony because the Romans were the world empire of the time. And so when he's writing 100 years later, Paul is addressing people who are very familiar with the idea of citizenship being in another place and having pride in that and also having security of knowing that if things went bad in their colony in Philippi, if they were attacked, they could call on the great emperor over in Rome and he had the authority over the world to come and save them and rescue them. And so Paul now brings this kind of dynamic of a colony into his letter and he says, yeah, you, some of you are probably highly prize your Roman citizenship and the fact that you bring that culture of that other place into this city. And if in trouble, you can appeal to the rescuer for help. But he says this radical claim, which could get him into a lot of trouble. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
not in Rome. Our citizenship, God's people, is in heaven. And we await a rescuer, a saviour, not from Rome, but from heaven, the Lord Jesus. It's not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and we await his rescue when he will bring us a new body. Now what Paul is doing here is putting into the image of a colony something that Jesus taught us to pray many years before. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, your values, the culture of heaven, in our lives, in our community, in our time, so that your will is done on earth just as it is in heaven. And that is the point of our lives as Christians and our life together as Grace Church, is that we become a colony, an outpost of heaven, a place of love and beauty, and holiness and when other people see it it's like a show home and they they can see the future admittedly a work in progress but they want to be part of it which is the exact opposite if you think about it of what life looks like when we are living for self living with our stomach as our god which is how the rest of our culture lives what would it mean what would it look like for Grace Church really to live as a colony of heaven. When we come back together, our culture around is absolutely preoccupied with self. We've even invented a form of the photograph called the selfie. So you can look at yourself and take pictures of yourself and display yourself on social media to other people in a curated form, of course. And therefore, because our culture is so preoccupied with self and feeding the self, it has no room for sacrifice and for service. How are we living right now? When the needs of other people impact on our lives, when the needs of other people impact on your comfort, on your pleasure, or even on your safety, when loving somebody else starts to bite and it becomes costly and uncomfortable, when it would be easier to walk away from a relationship rather than do the hard work of, of working it through with someone. In other words, what are we like when we're called to live a life of love that is other-centred? What are we like then? Are we going to stand firm in this happy hope of heaven and press on towards the prize? Or are we going to live the self-centred, flabby and unsatisfying life of the world around? I started this uh, sermon talking about Eric Liddell that great amateur Scottish runner. You know, he only ran, only was an athlete for about four years because his real goal in life was to be a missionary in China. And he did eventually become that in the 1920s. And so as his friends were carrying on to run great races and win medals, Eric was preaching to small groups of people in China. And he was still there when the Second World War broke out and he was taken to an internment camp. And in this camp, uh, the people gradually began to starve. Uh, they lived in great hardship for months and months and months, and many of them became ill. And Eric showed his character, as did a number of the other missionaries in that place. 
And the story of that uh, camp is told in a book called The Shantung Compound, told by a survivor of the camp, a man called Langdon Gilkey. And Langdon Gilkey told about how when men and women were under pressure, their true nature came out and they became more and more selfish. But he noticed a difference in many of the missionaries. There was something about them that they would take on acts of service to other people in the camp that no one else wanted to do. For example, they were ready to clean the toilets, which nobody else wanted to do. And they, on one occasion, tackled a huge social problem in the camp, which was what to do with the teenagers, because the teenagers were running wild and getting into um, sexual misconduct. Now, Gilkey wrote that the man who more than anyone brought about the solution to the teenage problem was Eric. It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I've ever known. Often in the evening of that last year, I would pass the game room and peer in to see what the missionaries were doing for the teenagers. As often as not, Eric would be bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of dance, absorbed, warm and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the minds and imaginations of these penned-up youths. If anyone could have done it, he could. A track runner, he had won the 400 in the Olympics for England in the 20s and then came to China as a missionary. In camp, he was in his middle 40s, lithe and springy of step and above all, overflowing with good humour and love of life. He was aided by others, to be sure, but it was Eric's enthusiasm and charm that carried the day with the whole effort. Shortly before the camp ended, he was stricken suddenly with a brain tumour and died the same day. The entire camp, especially the young people, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. That is what it looks like to be straining forward to the resurrection life and standing firm in the happy hope right now in a prison camp. And let me add that Winston Churchill had arranged through a special deal for Eric Liddell to be brought back to England and Liddell refused to come and asked for a pregnant woman to be brought instead. So he died there. What motivates a person to live like that? It wasn't because he was inherently good, he was the same as you and me. It wasn't because he was some special brand of human being. It was that his heart and mind were captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ. And that he knew he wasn't living for here and now in his mid-40s in China. He was living for the resurrection hope that Jesus had guaranteed. And that meant he could live a life that was utterly selfless, sacrificial, warm and loving. May God give us the grace to live like that. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, to know you and to be like you. To know the power of your resurrection life coursing through our veins and to participate in your sufferings, becoming like you in your death and so somehow to reach the resurrection from the dead. What a hope we have. Thank you for the new birth that we enjoy today. Help us to press on 
towards the prize. Amen.